You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. When Broadway shut down last March, former To Kill a Mockingbird cast members Celia Keenan-Bolger and Gideon Glick did what so many others in the theater industry did. They turned their sights to helping others. From feeding pandemic frontline workers to rocking the vote, these fast friends turned a dire situation into a quest for good. And I couldn't be happier than to have them here today. Celia, Gideon, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Um, actually, Celia, I have to say that it was Gavin Creel who said, oh, you have to have Celia on your podcast after he was on. <laughs> um, she does so many good things. Um, but let's let's talk about um, let's talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, because that is just one of my favorite stories and plays and movies of all time. Um, so what was it like, first of all, just bringing that classic to life um, and you know, what were you both doing on that day in March, you know, when, when, the, when our world fell apart? Um, and just sort of take us back 11 months in time, almost a year ago. It's so hard to, um, when you talk about time right now, it's like, it's really hard to place yourself um, in where you were and what you were doing, because time has uh, taken on its own um strange, strange, circuitous. And I feel like time has kind of expanded and accelerated at the same time. Um, so it's funny when you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird, because it feels like maybe a decade ago. <laughs> I had that same thought, Gideon. <laughs> I mean, just that we weren't doing the show when everything shut down. So I think that in some ways created some space to sort of engage with the community in a different way. Um, And just as far as, you know, being a part of that production, I think something that felt so moving and, and different from other experiences that I had had on Broadway was that I felt like not only was it one of the most artistically fulfilling things to make and then to do, but that it 
also it felt like the story that was being told that, you know, so many of us grew up with, that the revisiting of that story felt uh, sort of paramount and that the adaptation and the way that we decided to pull certain themes out and the way that um, I think Aaron Sorkin tried to make it a play for 2020 or 2019 um, just felt really mm-hmm. moving to me. And that um, I think I sort of imagined in my life that I would get to do theater that also had a conscience or or had, you know, some sort of statement, but I never really imagined that I would get to do it on Broadway, that it was like something that I would get to do, you know, off, off Broadway or, you know, in regional theater mm-hmm. where that kind of work has, I think, sometimes more of a place. Well, Bart Shear's a good friend of mine too. So um, I saw it multiple times and it was just, you know, it was just incredible. Um, and it kind of, grew, I have tears in my eyes just thinking about theater right now and, and missing it so much. But um, speaking of tears, um, so Gideon, you've witnessed this pandemic from a very personal side. Um, your your husband, Perry, is on the front lines of this whole thing. Um, what's this been like for you? Well, that's um that's kind of a it's a that's a good way in. So essentially, and to to go back to what your question was before is, so I was doing Little Shop of Horrors at the time when everything shut down. So I was actually it was it was actually my last week of performances. So it was, I was finishing another run, hmm. strangely, right after Mockingbird, and you know at the West Side Theater. It's a it's a very small um, kind of dingy theater, and all the men share one dressing room, and all the women share another dressing room. So you're really on top of each other. And my husband, who is not only a very smart doctor, but he's also um, a bit neurotic, and he was following, and he's Jewish too, so he's like really neurotic. <laughs> I can relate. And, <laughs> and so he was following everything that was going on, kind of before everybody else. Um, let's say plebeians uh, were were um, attuned to what was going on, and so I started bringing the um, anxiety into the theater quite early, mm. and everyone kind of looked at me like I was insane, and I felt kind of crazy. But I was kind of a Cassandra, where I was like all of a sudden bringing in sanitizer, and I was kind of having my uh, distancing myself from my dresser a little bit, being like, you know, I think I'm going to take care of my stuff as much as possible. I'm going to, anything that goes into my mouth, I will touch, please, please. I thank you, but I'm going to, I'm going to take that on. And then really fast, it started the shift. And then everybody started kind of hooking in and then everything accelerated and then we were shut down Mm -hmm. and it was, um, it was, it was shocking and not shocking at the same time. And what was very strange was that the last show, which there was some of us kind of had a feeling it was going to be the last show because you we had heard already about Moulin Rouge shutting down um, and and the infection going on there. Um, the audience was, it felt like we were performing at the fall of Rome. Like there was this sense of electricity that I'd never experienced before. Or after, I mean, well, obviously not after because <laughs> nobody's done the theater. But I, I, I never experienced anything like that. It, it was this sense that this was it, even though we didn't really know. Um, so that was like the beginning, obviously, with with, with Perry. And mm-hmm. then what brings us into Broadway Feeds Bellevue? Um, you know, in the beginning, it was it was very scary 
we didn't know what was going on in terms of infection, how, how, how it got um, transmitted and so forth. Perry and I were, we separated physically for, uh, for a little bit in the beginning. I got very lucky that there was somebody in our building who um, absconded to Maine. So I, I took over his apartment. Um, and so we were separated and very scared. And Celia, who is the most wonderful friend in the world, um, was saying, hey, what's going on? How are you, how are you guys doing? Because also Perry had sort of become part of our, like the fabric of our time at To Kill a Mockingbird. Like there, you know, you have these, the times in between, you know, the two show days and Perry would come and we would all sit on the floor and eat Westville and like talk about, you know, how hard it is to do eight shows a week. <laughs> Perry would say, yeah, I think tonight I'm going to go see blah, 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 blah. Like he had, he's like an amazing theater goer. And so he just became a part of our lives during that show. And in fact, Gideon and Perry were getting married like six weeks after we closed. No, maybe a little more than that. Two weeks. So basically- no. Sorry guys, two weeks left. Yeah, so a Mockingbird ended, then I did Little Shop for two weeks. And then on the last day of Little Shop, we got married. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Their wild. wedding was, it was like a really, really special wedding. And I think as all of this began, I just remember listening to some podcast about um, about Italy um, and what was happening to the healthcare workers in Italy. And it, it started to feel like it was pretty clear that this was not something that was just going to stay um, across the ocean. And, and talking about the sort of overwhelm of hospitals and the overwhelm of healthcare workers, I, of course, the only doctor <laughs> that I know is, um, is Perry. And, and not only do I know him, but I, I care deeply about his husband and I had come to care about him too. And so I just felt like, oh my God, if this is indeed happening, what's going to happen to my friends and how, like, what do we do to even support healthcare workers? Like while this is, while this is going on. And I think maybe sometimes trauma um, reignites past trauma in our lives. And sure. um when I was just out of college, my mom died and my and was very sick during the time that we were in college, when I when I was in college. And the there was like a community theater that my brother and sister and I had performed in. And they set up this whole meal train for my dad, who had two kids at home. Mm. And they would just bring like pans of lasagna over and and had this whole setup where they were taking care of our family um, by bringing them food. And I guess for whatever reason, I like flashed on what that experience was and how helpful that was to my dad, who I think was feeling very overwhelmed, taking care of somebody who was very sick. And I just, I think I texted you, Gideon, and I was like, what, if, what can we do? What, what should we do? Should we, should we set up a meal train for Perry? And we were like, is that a thing? Like, how would that happen? Um, and we did a little bit of research and found out that there is, in fact, like now a whole website called Meal Train that's mm -hmm. dedicated to setting up, like, you know, getting either meals delivered through restaurants or through, you know, people just cooking at home. 
Um, and we brought in our friend Victoria Myers, who I think had the bandwidth to sort of navigate that website, which both of us were sort of like, I can't take that <laughs> on. And she was able to say like, this is what we would do. And we decided sort of early, we were like, well, nobody's going to cook. So how can we make it so that we could get restaurants to deliver to these hospital workers? And that was when Perry, you, you tag team from here. So we asked Perry if that was something he'd be interested in. because He works at Sloan Kettering, which is a cancer hospital. Mm-hmm. And most of his patients were, because they were already immunocompromised, they had actually uh, incubated themselves pretty early. So there wasn't a, an onslaught of COVID patients at Sloan. But obviously, we have lots of friends who are hospital workers um, through Perry's, um, through academia, and just his, you know, his friend group is mm-hmm. is more, um, are, 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 it consists more of doctors. And we had one who was manning the ICUs at Bellevue. And that was really bad, especially, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so he said, why don't you reach out to, to Gabriella, our friend Gabriella at Bellevue? And so we did. And she said, yes. And it was not even a hesitation. She said, this would be amazing. We don't really have the bandwidth to feed ourselves. We are working overtime, nonstop, basically going home to sleep and coming back to the hospital. And it would be incredible to be fed. So that's how we ended up at Bellevue. And then when we started to do the meal train, we realized, yes, it's too hard to have people make food for a day, you know, for a a designated day. And it's also too difficult to, um, basically we realized we needed to mainline, mainline it? I don't think that's the word. Um, (laughs) Mainstream it. Yeah. Mainstream it. So we... That's when we decided, okay, why don't we, people can symbolically donate a meal, which Mm -hmm. will be a form of money. Say this much can buy this meal, this much can buy dessert, this much can buy drinks. And so people would donate and then we would, we basically use the funds to bring in restaurants, local restaurants that were also now being struck at that moment and not having a way to make money. And we brought them in. So we then essentially got a, in the beginning, we, it was like three, by the end, I think we got like eight or 10. Um, it, you know, it all took a life of its own, especially as it kept going. And, and we basically created relationships with the restaurants and started feeding them. Uh, the workers at Bellevue. And then it grew and grew. At first, it was just the people manning the ICUs. But by the end, I think we had like, I, I was trying to look for the Google Doc that had it all because it's been it's been a while. But we had like eight different departments and we were doing about 500 meals a day by the end. Um, and I'll say it's, it's interesting because it, obviously it was about helping others, but in a way it helped us too. For We were so helpless at that moment. We didn't know how to help. And we were just sitting there on our couches doing nothing. And so it was a way for us to kind of use our um, anxiety or our helplessness to to do good. And, and you saw the community also desperately wanting to help as well, which is how we raised so much money. Yeah. I feel like it is such a microcosm of my experience inside of the Broadway community, which is that it is one of the most generous groups of people 
that I've ever been a part of, both in terms of energy and in terms of dollars, and that all the community needs is a place to show up. And so initially, you know, I think I sent an email to like 15 friends who I considered somewhat fancy in the business. And I was like, if we could have your names attached as already supporting us, it might encourage a couple of other people to get involved. And I think we set our um, our goal at like $10,000, which seemed pretty intense considering that everybody had just lost their job. And we were like, it, does that seem like too much? Does that seem, you know, but we figured out how many, you know, how many meals we could cover with $10,000. And and I think just from that initial email, we raised over $10,000. So we were like, oh, well, maybe as we open it up to the public, we'll we'll say like, could we raise $20,000? And we ended up raising over $150,000. And I think that that Amazing. is just such a testament to like, if you put out the call and if you say, this is where we need your energy, like it is astounding to me that the the community always shows up and that there there's this this idea that actors are like totally self-absorbed and and narcissistic and you know while that may be true <laughs> it's not my overwhelming experience with them whatever you want to say about it they're also like unbelievably generous and activated when called you know into the fold to say we need your help with this so it just also felt like at a time when our community was so splintered and when we had been basically taken away, I mean, I don't think we, I know we didn't know then how long it was going to be that we weren't working, but it felt like this, this way to come together while we weren't performing that I also like, especially looking back on it, I find, you know, really moving. I think it is really moving. And I think you also, both of you hit on two things that are so at the essence of what some of the conversations that I've been having with this podcast. And that is, the reason I wanted this to be Broadway Gives Back is because Broadway really does give back. Broadway is such a caring community, and there are so many incredible stories like yours of Broadway people caring and giving back and being of service. And the other thing, you know, that you hit on is so true, and that is, you know, people feel good when they give. And sometimes people don't realize how good it's going to feel to give. And so in a way, being, you know, philanthropic or, or altruistic or whatever is actually very selfish because it makes you feel really good too. And um, I think a lot of people have tapped onto that idea as well. Um, both of these guys are nodding their heads while I'm talking, so thank you. <laughs> I remember hearing somebody say they were like the the antidote to anxiety is is action. That, you know, it's especially when you have a lot of time on your hands and you're just fretting and doom scrolling, <laughs> the only way to sort of calm that is to do something. Right. And I think for a lot of people, the doing feels very overwhelming, that it feels like there is so much to be done. And there are a lot of ways that people, you know, I think about that. They, I remember, I think the Broadway Advocacy Coalition had, um, it was like the social justice ecosystem, and it had all of these different titles of where you could fit in organizing for change. And I think it's like one of the most helpful graphics that I've ever seen because I, I think no matter who you are, you can find yourself in that graphic. I can, well, I'll send you the link. You can put it in your show notes. If I'd you love want. to see it. Well, yeah, we'll do that. It really 
Um, cause I think there are people who are like, you know, I, I would never knock on somebody's door. I would never call somebody on behalf of a candidate. Um, but I would love to give money. And there are people who are like, I have no money. Mm-hmm. I, um, but I have some energy. I don't want to knock on someone's door or call somebody, but I could reach out to five people who I know might be interested in. So you can find all of these different ways that you can do something. And I think when you're feeling overwhelmed and know that you should be engaging, it's so helpful. It's been so helpful to me to have someone say like, here's a place where you can show up. And that that takes so much off of your own plate. And then you're just like, oh, okay, well then that makes everything so much easier. And I think, you know, that was, that felt so clear in the Broadway Feeds Bellevue of this all, especially, I mean, I remember Gideon, you got an email from one of the restaurants yeah. after um, like yeah. that. Um, what, I, what did it say? It was basically just like basically it was like we would have we would have shut down without you guys. I mean, you essentially kept us open, um, and and which was <laughs> horribly moving. Like it's still <laughs> it's still terribly moving. But you know, it was interesting how how Broadway feeds above you ended up being it saved everybody. It saved mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. It saved, um, it saved the Bellevue workers and it saved the community, the local community. And, um, it was funny in the beginning, we were all very nervous about a asking people for money, reaching out to restaurants. I mean, I was calling these restaurants, just blank calling them being like, hi, we're actors. Like we want to, <laughs> how do we do this? And I was so nervous, but everybody was so down and so eager to make it all work because it was um because it, you know it was going so many different places it wasn't it, it 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 was cyclical in a way and where the money was going who it was feeding who it was helping and it was all organic and and it and it organically got bigger and bigger and it wasn't there were times where it was stressful just because well a dealing with money is always stressful i mean you should see all those spreadsheets we have it's wild (laughs) somebody who you know can barely like count to five um and here you're manning like 200 we can raise almost two hundred thousand dollars by the end all you have to do is show up and it really does work itself out and it um that was the big learning experience for me because it seemed so daunting and 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 scary and and as Celia touched on like the idea of even asking people for money at this moment and what we also realized was a lot of what we raised too was just people giving five dollars ten dollars I mean it it that the little bit goes a long way I mean it it, it's a you hear that saying all the time but this was proof of it and that was really really inspiring it's really true step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Celia, you had said, I read an interview in Backstage, and you had said something like, actors can save the world. So I say, here, here. But what did you mean by that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I feel that. It's like going to make me cry. <laughs> um, I feel that. I feel that particularly coming out of what we are going through right now, both um, politically in our country and the sort of division of what we're experiencing. I think, um, I think when I said it, I probably was referring – to the way an audience member feels when they experience a story or a character that um, for whatever reason deeply affects them. And I think what I'm what I'm realizing about what we do is that the sort of repair that I think is required for our country right now, is not possible through social media um, or journalism or even amazing politicians. That the repair is, it feels to me like the only way forward is, is repair through arts and culture. You can't change people's minds or tell them what to think, but you can show characters struggling against insurmountable odds and it will have a different kind of effect on them. And I think that kind of change right now feels so profound and so important that I feel just really strongly that however we start the recovery process of of what we've all just gone through, not just politically, but the, the isolation of these past 10 months, almost 11 months, <laughs> that we need... We need um, belonging and a, a sense of um, of community and how hard this was for everyone. Because I think sometimes when I look at people who have different beliefs than I do, it's so easy to be reductive in my thinking about their ignorance or about the, their information or about the kind of people that they are. And I think it's so much more complex than that. But that nuance, how do you how do you get that nuance across in just, you know, I think you can do it, you know, around a dinner table. But even that, you know, my I don't know that I have like uh, the blood pressure to, <laughs> to engage in those conversations. And I think that that actors are so empathetic and that, that so much of our job is trying to understand people who don't behave in the way that we do, that we are uniquely attuned to trying to both understand and represent with dignity people with whom we don't identify. And that feels like a really important gift right now. And it feels like a really important um, message to be able to <laughs> get out 
to the world and to our country. Okay, I just want to say now I'm crying and I am literally, <laughs> if I could put my arms through this podcast, through this broadcast, I'm putting my arms around you and hugging you. Thank you. That was just, you put that so eloquently and um, it was beautiful. I've had a lot of time to think about it. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Some of us have been binge watching, you know, like ridiculous TV shows and some of us have been thinking, what can I tell you? <laughs> um, there are no wrong answers. There are no wrong answers. Hey, Gideon, so you are, from my understanding, you, you, number one, you're gay. Number two, you're partially deaf. Is that true? Yeah, I'm, I'm deaf in my right ear. So obviously you faced a totally different set of challenges just in your upbringing. Um and with becoming an actor. And I just wondered if um, if any of that informs sort of where you're at today and and, and particularly what we're going through um, since you faced some challenges and, and if you could explain a little bit about how that, how that it has been for you. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I think we all face adversity in one way or another. I don't think I mean, yeah, I, I was born with one ear. It was constructed in the first grade. Um, I came out very early. Um, those that That's a big part of my story. But I think everybody has that. Um, granted, the ear is a very um, singular thing. It's not that common. But uh, other people have other things. And I think there was a strange equalizer. An equalizer is, a, is maybe not the right word, but... During this moment, we realized, oh, my God, we're all suffering deeply, mm. deeply. And we're all suffering in the same ways and in different ways. And I think that was the weird equalizer, is the is um, the understanding of the suffering. Not necessarily the suffering, but the understanding that we were all suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a that was a big moment of this year for me and for everyone around me, obviously you have your wonderful friends. I have a Celia Keenan Bolger that I get to talk to and it is a light, but, but nobody was, nobody's out of the, um, of the tunnel. Everyone's in the tunnel together. Mm -hmm. And that was just, um, a moving and, um, kind of, I think life-changing experience. It still is. I mean, we're still in it. Right. I also think I haven't thought about it I, or that I have thought about it more in retrospect and it, particularly as the ways that members of our community have not necessarily felt represented and that I think performers with disabilities are like very, very high on that list. And the experience of watching Gideon navigate a rehearsal room and blocking and things where he's just like, guys, you got to be on the other side of me because I can't hear out of the side of my ear. Like I need things. And his ease and and also not apologizing um for for who he was i think i completely took for granted as we were doing the show and looking back on it i'm like that is whether or not however much it costs you gideon it's still a it's an amount of energy that i was not expending in the rehearsal process to try to um to navigate it so that I wasn't being, you know, so that you weren't being a problem, but also saying like, this is a reality of my, if you get me, you get my one ear. So <laughs> um, that's how this is going to go. You don't really have one ear, but one ear. <laughs> um, and that I just think it's, it's interesting for me to reflect on now. And I hope going forward to have more of a sensitivity to what that might be like for people 
who are in a rehearsal room who are not able-bodied or, com- or who don't identify as able-bodied. But at the same time, my one ear is my norm. So mm-hmm. yes, you could see it as something that there's adversity, but I, but I don't know anything else. <laughs> so as a result, that is my baseline. And so I don't see myself as, oh, I got to do this because you're doing that. I just see myself as, well, this is what I got to do. And because that's me. Um, and in a weird way, there's a strange blessing to it. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that about anything that makes them strange or unique is that it gives them a, a different perspective and it gives them, um, you know, a, a point of view. Um, and I think there are people that can see it as a blessing. And I'm, I am, um, don't get me wrong, there are times, especially when I'm doing a musical or I, I want to like <laughs> scream, God, I wish I could hear out of both of my ears. Um, but I, I think it also, it gives me, it gives me something that is that is mine, um, and uh, and I, I feel lucky at the same time about it. What's the expression that if everybody took their their challenges or their issues or whatever, and they put them all in the in a pot in the center of the room, everybody would go back and pick the ones that they already have instead of taking everybody else's, <laughs> mm. you know? Um, yeah. Right. But yeah, um, yeah, I understand that. You know, you two are both such eloquent and intelligent in this conversation and just in life and the roles that you pick and, and what you do. And I just wonder, and, you know, also with your, your advocacy and your, your giving and, and did you, like, did you grow up in families where this was sort of what you did or did you, like, did you see it modeled? Um, Celia, I know you, you mentioned you have a son. So do you model sort of philanthropy for your, for your for your son and, or do you involve him in some of the philanthropic things or social activism types of things that you are involved in? I mean, I certainly try to, I think it was such a huge part of my own childhood. And I think sometimes when people are like, it's so amazing, like how, you know, how are you, how have you been so engaged for so long? And I think the gift of growing up in the family that I grew up in is that it was a non-negotiable. Like it was so much a part of the fabric of our family that it's not something that I have to go sort of outside of myself to pursue, that it just is a part of me. And I, if that is something that I can give to my son, I will feel, I will feel really good about that. I think it makes it, I remember reading an article where there were um, four women who were very deeply entrenched in in their in, in advocacy for different reasons. And the one through line that they all had was that they had politically active mothers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, someday I'm going to write a paper about that or some, <laughs> some kind of essay. Because I, I think that really all of the, the people that I know who have it sort of in their bones had had parents for whom it was a really important part of their family. So certainly, I mean, I think it's interesting. Sometimes my son is like, everything feels like a lesson. And I'm like, well, what do you think being a mother is? (laughs) But I think you can go too far. So I Mm. am aware of just trying. I I think the modeling is the best thing that you can do. Right. Um, But, you know, I do think probably we have a lot of conversations that he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm bored. But, you know, (laughs) not not everything is a teachable moment. But I think you're right. I think that in in lots of the people that I've spoken to, it's definitely been that was modeled. It was part of their upbringing. But then there were certain people where it wasn't at all. And because it wasn't, it almost flipped them to be more philanthropic. So I think it can come from different stimuli. um, But for me, also, it came from modeling from my mom, for sure. What about you, Gideon? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I came from a, a very academic family, and so um, I think the 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 talk of the uh, at the dinner table was not necessarily about philanthropy, but it was about um, scrutiny, not necessarily negative scrutiny, but scrutiny of of the media, scrutiny of the times we live in, scrutiny. Um, you know, finding patterns, pattern recognition is a very big thing, especially for my mother. Um, but I think with that scrutiny, I learned about, okay, well, I scrutinize myself and I say, okay, well, what will make me a better person? What, why, how do we only get one shot at this? And so like, what, what, I don't want to waste my time here. And so what can I do that I can look back and say, oh, I, I, I made at least a positive impact because I, 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 I've always believed in the Boy Scout rule, which is you you know leave the campsite better than you found it. And so so how can we how can we do that? And I think that comes from the searching aspect that I that I that both of my parents possess that and it's and it's um, it's unrelenting. I think that also it makes me think about how we could never have made Broadway feeds Bellevue with just one of us. That it was that understanding what you have to offer and where you can sort of take, where your energy can be used is so crucial, I think, to organizing and getting work done. And that because the three of us had very different skills, we were able to like sort of play the long game where I think if it ha- if we hadn't reached out to one another, that we wouldn't have been able to to do what we did. And that it's so, for me, I mean, it feels like just an extension of being a member of the theater community, but I, I love collaboration and I love the feeling that like, if I don't have the understanding or bandwidth for this thing, there probably is somebody else who does. And I think yeah. as we like pursue what is important to us, finding people who both, you know, in the Venn diagram have a good big overlap, but also have a huge space that mm-hmm. we don't have is so helpful. People listening to this podcast, well, I hope there are people listening to this podcast, but <laughs> let's start there. Um, you know, I feel like one of the, some of the feedback I get is how can people be everyday philanthropists? And I've been asking, you know, all my guests that question, you know, if you were able to, well, you are, you're able to talk to people right now. So how would you advise people to become more, um, there's so many different words for it, whether it's social activism or, or social responsibility or philanthropy or charity, um, being of service. What would you what would you say to people if they were asking your advice? I would say don't be afraid of the little things. I think the little things go a long way. I think people get um, get destabilized by the idea of oh, I have to make a big impact or it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, going up to the Biden. Uh, going up to the election, I, I, I was texting every day for a month, but it, it was little, it was, a, it was, I was doing it while I was watching television. I mean, it, I was, you know, I was text banking and it, it was easy and small. And I felt I made a difference. I felt I made an impact. And so, and, and I, I, you know, you donate, you can donate $10 to a campaign, $10 to, um, uh, a, a social cause. And you can also lend your voice to something by just speaking out even at your dinner table, you are being an activist. You are, that is philanthropy. So I would say just don't be overwhelmed by your impact because your tiny impact is very impactful. I really agree with that. I feel like 
I think it changed a lot. I feel like the Boy Scout leave the leave the campsite better than you found it. Never felt more profound to me than when I had a son, where I was like, "Oh, you got to like really get to work." That the personal is political, and that knowing the name of Hassan, who has our hot dog cart on the corner of our block, gives my son a window into Muslim culture and his family back in Egypt. And then we are able to have a more nuanced conversation about the world at large. And all that took, and I would never have asked this man his name before my son was born. I would, I would don't even know if I would have recognized that there was a hot dog cart on the block. But suddenly, again, trying to model and be like, you know, these are the people that make our neighborhood work. Our mailman has a name. Our doormen have families and lives of their own. And I think sometimes, you know, obviously, we're, I think to the degree that we can, we're going to engage with the issues that are important to us. And we will donate to the, to the, uh, organizations that that we feel like support our our beliefs, but that when even that feels too uh, overwhelming as it sometimes does, that like knowing the name of the guy who works in your bodega is political. That I think that that action actually it makes us all New Yorkers. It makes us part of a community. I mean, I think about when all of the ice detentions were going on and that suddenly people were starting to talk about, you know, I have these family members where there have been raids. And it's like, if you don't have, because I don't know a lot of immigrant, I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of interface with immigrant communities. It's like, well, then who are the people in your everyday life that are sometimes invisible, who are, um, certainly before I had a child, just didn't have great meaning in my life, but that all of those people can can activate something both empathetically, but also just in our knowledge of how other people move through the world. And I think that that is, is really, really important going forward in how we, um, how we feel about the place where we live and what we invest in it. So interesting because also as actors, you know, you are, you are trained to be present and be in the moment and be aware. And, um, and in a way that's what you're, you're sort of you're talking about here is being aware of the hot dog vendor on the corner or the <laughs> bodega owner, right? And seeing them and, and seeing them in a different way. I think that's really important. There's one last question that I've been thinking about a lot. And um, I was thinking about if I could wave a magic wand, what kind of change would I want to see when Broadway reopens? And I don't really have my own answer quite yet, but I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts about it. I have a feeling my answer will be a compilation of all my guests' answers. <laughs> 80-minute long production only. Starting at 7 p.m. <laughs> I mean, I would say, obviously, with the, you know, the racial reckoning, the, this with the Black Lives Matter movement, I, 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 I would hope that when we come back, there's more equality. I mean, I... I I've never once auditioned for a black casting director, which I just think is insane. Mm. It's insane. I think we can we can work harder to to make that happen. And I and and it, it's not it can't be about virtue signaling, and it can't be about um, you know getting your numbers in. It has to be about a, a real desire 
for that. It has to be about the desire to tell another story, not the the idea that we will tell that story because we have to, or because again, we're hitting a, a, a checking off a box. And I think that is the mentality that we, I would hope when we come back, that that's part of, part of building up the community again. I feel like similarly, if I could wave the magic wand, it would help the white community of theater makers sit in their discomfort with the change that needs to occur because they think white comfort has trumped. I mean, it continues to always take priority. And this includes this guy right here that I, when I think about the change that is about, that's, that I think is, is required for equity. Um, it's not going to be that enjoyable for me. And so I have to figure out how to build systems that can support me through that discomfort. And and I just, I hope that when it comes up, instead of throwing up our hands and being like, this is crazy, can't we just go back to the way it was, that we will be strong enough and that we will have a, the belief that I have always had in our community that I'm realizing is like sort of rotted at the foundation that I believed it was this place that had space for everyone and that was inclusive and loving and that everybody's experience inside of it made them feel more whole mm. and more like only to find out that that is in fact the opposite mm -hmm. for many members of our community and to figure out how to not only create the space so that they have more of the experience that I've had all this time, but also to create the space for me to feel like this is very hard and also I can get through this. I'm going to leave it at this because that was beautifully put. And um, I am so grateful that the two of you um, took the time to chat with me this morning. And um, I feel like I feel like I'm going to move on from this day and think a lot about what you both have said. And I'm really appreciative of your time and your your intellect, as I said, and, and your <laughs> your thoughts. Thank you so much for being part of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Oh, thank, thank you, you for, for making us. a podcast where we can show up like this. <laughs> I think it's so amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway Gives Back. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, with Brittany Bigelow, and music by Eric Becker at Broderick Street Music. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, and friend, Jim Lochner, and to Katie and Yo at BPN, Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency, the Charity Network, and to my fiance, Glenn Weiss, who is always my consultant. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash broadwaygivesback. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.